Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. Historian Richard Rothstein, whose 2017 best-selling book, The Color of Law, exposed how federal, state, and local laws have perpetuated segregation, has co-written a follow-up with his daughter, community organizer and housing policy expert Leah Rothstein, which argues that residential segregation underlies the nation's social problems, including inequalities in health care, education, and income. Their book, Just Action, How to Challenge Segregation Enacted Under the Color of Law, is published by Libright and brings Richard and Leah Rothstein to our show now. Welcome. Thank you. Hi. And am I pronouncing your name right? It's Rothstein or Rothstein? Rothstein. Sure. Okay, but... I got it right. Okay, good. Richard, in The Color of Law, which uh, is a history of racial segregation in the United States, you described how government policy has fostered and helped create racial residential segregation, and you argued that most Americans continue to live se- uh, separated by race, not out of personal preference, but as a result of decades of legal and government action and and uh, inaction. In other words, de facto segregation. Have things changed in the seven years since it was published? Not really. Uh, We still are a segregated society. In fact, over time, last 50 or so years, we've become more segregated than ever before. So in that respect, things haven't much changed. But what we argue in this new book, Just Action, is that although federal policy created the segregated society that we know today, once the policies were created, once the system was created, many local programs and practices reinforce and sustain it. And so even though there's not today a national will to enact significant reforms Mm -hmm. to challenge segregation in both its aspects, both the lack of resources in low-income segregated neighborhoods and the lack of access to higher opportunity neighborhoods, of black people, even though there's no national will to do that, there are so many things we can do at the local level to redress segregation and make a significant dent in it that we can get started. Uh, I'll say one other thing, that 20 million people participated in Black Lives Matter demonstrations uh, mm-hmm. uh, after the George Floyd murder. Uh, it's the biggest outpouring of racial justice, uh, for racial justice we've ever had in this nation's history. But most of those people went home and uh, didn't do anything further. And we think the reason is that they didn't know what to do. And so we've tried to write this book to give them examples of things that can be done to redress segregation. And, and Leah, that leads me to what I was going to ask you. In the past two or three years, hasn't talk of racial reckoning given way to what appears to be a combination of growing liberal fatigue and conservative attacks on any public acknowledgement of our racial history? That's one way of seeing it, but I can say I've been going around the country talking about this book, Just Action, to groups in all sorts of communities all over the country, and there are people hungry for ideas of what to do in their own communities to address the disparities that they see and that they've grown accustomed to and realize that there you know, are government policies behind the, the disparities and the segregation that they're experiencing and that there are policies that can undo it. And so there might be a national sort of fatigue about the conversation, but on the local level, there's a lot of action and energy for for implementing these changes. Well, is it fair to say that racial segregation characterizes every metropolitan area in the United States and bears responsibility for our most serious social and economic problems, uh, de facto segregation? Well, we don't call it de facto segregation. De facto mm. segregation implies that it just happened by accident. Uh-huh. And the, the underlying theme of the color of law was that, yeah, that, that, that's a myth. That it's mm. not de facto segregation. It's an unconstitutional system. And it does underlie our most serious social problems. Uh, uh, we have a test score gap in schools. African-American children typically achieve at lower levels in schools than than white middle-class children, and that's because they're concentrated in seriously disadvantaged neighborhoods, which impede their ability to take advantage of of good schools. Well, after World War II, after World War II, weren't millions of war veterans met with a, a housing shortage because during the war, no civilian housing was built, and 
The war followed the Great Depression when there was also no housing built. So the federal government wanted to do something about that to help these families. Uh, did it mostly uh, create suburbs for white families like Levittown? Yes. Yes. And this was a racially explicit program. It wasn't, as I said before, it's not de facto. The federal government guaranteed William Levitt clones in Levittown on condition that he never sell a home to a black person. This was wow. written out in the federal policy manual. Uh, the federal government required him to place a clause in the deed of every home prohibiting resale to African-Americans. So, yes, this program for returning war veterans, as well as for uh, white middle class and working class families who were not uh, veterans, uh, program was a racially explicit program on the part of the federal government. And even today, Levittown is 2% African-American in an area that uh, surrounds it that's 13% African-American. Yes, yeah, that's right. That, that's, yeah, yeah, go I, ahead, Leah. Let's get Leah into this. Go ahead, Leah. But yeah. I'm going to just, yeah, I'm not going to address each question to each of you. Uh, I assume that you'll just jump in when you have something to say. Leah, what, what did you want to say? Sure. Well, the Levittown example, you know, it might be easy to think that those policies that created Levittown on a racially restrictive basis are, you know, a thing of the past. We now have the Fair Housing Act that says that you can't sell homes on a discriminatory basis in Levittown or anywhere else. But the fact is, is that the repercussions of those past policies are still with us. Like you said, the disparity, the racial disparity in Levittown versus its surrounding areas are because when Levittown was created and it was restricted only to whites, the homes in Levittown were affordable to working class families of any race at the time. They were sold for about $100,000 in today's money, which is a very affordable home. And now homes in Levittown and suburbs that were created like it all across the country sell for way more than $100,000, four, five, six, seven hundred thousand, some places a million or more. So families who bought into Levittown, white families who built up wealth over the generations as their homes accumulated in value, their children and grandchildren can buy homes using that inherited wealth, whereas African-American families don't have the same access to intergenerational wealth because they were locked out of home ownership when it was affordable. But this and is so all- that's why... Sorry. I was going to say this is all over the country, right? There's all a, over the country. There's a photograph. Yeah, Levittown. In, go ahead. Levittown is one example, but this is how the federal government helped suburbanize the entire country. And there's a photograph in your book of a six foot high, half a mile long wall in Detroit, which was required to be built by the developer of a white subdivision to separate his subdivision from a nearby African American neighborhood. Didn't he have to get a loan guarantee from the Federal Housing Administration in order to build that wall? Yes, that's why we say this is a federal government unconstitutional policy, because these developers could never afford it to build these projects on their own. Levittown, the example you just gave, 17,000 homes. Where was Levitt going to get the money to build 17,000 homes. The only way you could do it was by getting a federal bank guarantee. And it was with that bank guarantee that the federal government placed these racial conditions on his uh, loans. And you cite uh, other places uh, all over the country, Modesto, California, uh, and Oakland, um, Mount Airy in Pennsylvania, Oak Park in Illinois, Cleveland Heights in Ohio, um, uh, were they all uh, affected by the NIMBY attitude? Well, neighborhoods all over the country are affected by the NIMBY attitude. The NIMBY, NIMBY refers to not in my backyard. We use it to, you know, it's the term that refers to people who say that they support housing in general until there's sort of a multifamily or affordable housing development proposed in their own neighborhood, and then they vehemently uh, oppose it. It's a big reason why we have a housing shortage all across the country, because uh, building multifamily or higher density housing has been blocked by people who are afraid of what it means for the changing, quote unquote, character of their neighborhood. Um, so in the examples you cited, um, th- those are different examples. I we could have mentioned San our- Francisco, too, right? Yeah, everywhere. Mm-hmm. Yep. And, you know, often the NIMBY attitude is strongest in liberal cities where you expect them to support um, housing development when 
until it's proposed in their own backyard. So but, uh, uh, let me add that the yeah. go on. Go let ahead. me add that the, the those twenty million that I talked about before came from suburbs like those as well. Those demonstrators in the Black Lives Matter demonstrations, and you can tell by looking at the Black Lives Matter signs on lawns in these suburbs, there were whites as well as blacks, uh, middle class as well as working class. And so there's a potential for opposition to this, this NIMBY attitude. And the problem we face now is that the NIMBYs are much more vocal. Mm-hmm. And one of the purposes of Just Action is to encourage people who do support racial justice to be more vocal and to stand up. No, in some cases, uh, neighborhoods were integrated and there was white flight. And right, that happened well, often. Flight. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead, Leah. Go ahead, Leah. Yeah. Yeah, the white flight often happened in white sort of inner ring suburbs when they started to diversify in the mid-20th century. It still occurs. They start to diversify and then the whites are kind of encouraged, incentivized to leave by realtors who, um, you know, promote white flight, they incite fear that their property values are going to decline. And so they should sell quickly and leave the neighborhood. And then they sell those same homes for higher prices to the incoming African-American population. And the the community flips from all white to all African-American. This has happened all over the country. Some of the communities that you just named, Mount Airy, Pennsylvania, Cleveland Heights, Ohio, Oak Park, Illinois, are some examples that we wrote about of communities that resisted that that trend towards white flight. They saw it happening in nearby areas, and they didn't want that to happen to their own neighborhoods. And so they underwent, a, you know, community organizing campaigns to keep the whites from leaving the neighborhood and creating a positive integration in their own communities where they supported um, an integrated community and they resisted the temptation to to sell and to leave and to be, you know, inciting fear of falling property values. And they created an ongoing sustained integration in those neighborhoods that persist today. So it was successful. It has been successful. Yeah. And we cite those as examples of what can happen when there's intentional effort to um, maintain and create integration. Well, you also suggest strategies for closing the wealth gap that's made home ownership unaffordable for middle-class Black Americans, including savings support plans, subsidized down payments, fair and responsible appraisals and assessments, modifying single-family zoning to allow large multifamily housing developments, and instituting low-income housing tax credits. Um, How often are these things implemented? Well, they're implemented everywhere um, to varying degrees, the various examples you gave. Um, You know, in our book, Just Action, we describe each of those examples and many more of strategies that a local community can take to address the wealth gap, to address um, desegregation efforts, to, to remedy the past policies that created ongoing segregation. And for each of those examples, we give an example of a community that successfully implemented those. So I'll give, you know, from what what you just listed off, one example is, you know, the wealth gap that exists because of these past policies that created um, housing segregation. You know, the example from Levittown, those white families that built up wealth because they got into home ownership when it was affordable, African-American families prohibited from doing so, leads us to a situation today where African-American household wealth is about 5% of average white household wealth. That's a huge, huge disparity that's due in large part to these housing policies. So we now have the Fair Housing Act that says African-Americans can freely buy wherever they want. But it's sort of an empty promise when they can't afford to buy into places like Levittown because they don't have inherited wealth. So one way of addressing that that we discuss is um, down payment assistance programs targeted at African-American families who have suffered the ongoing consequences of the policies that created segregation to provide them with assistance to pay for the down payments where they don't have the intergenerational wealth to do so. There's public programs that do this through cities, counties. Um, uh, housing finance agencies, and there's private programs through banks, um, realtor agencies. Some of them have started down payment assistance programs. We also describe some programs that were started by private citizens who started an organization to raise money and provide down payment assistance to African-American families because they wanted to address this um, discriminatory history and, and make some remedy for it today. 
My guests on today's Leonard Lopit at Large are Leah and Richard Rothstein, co-authors of Just Action, How to Challenge Segregation and Act It Under the Color of Law, published by Live Right. This is WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, and streaming live at WBAI.org. Haven't we seen hostility from Chief Justice John G. Roberts, Jr. and and the uh, new Supreme Court supermajority to race-conscious remedies of any kind. Roberts argued that the government had no role to play in creating segregation, so it has no role to play in undoing or challenging or remedying it. Yes, you're absolutely right, and he is willfully ignorant of this history. This is not hidden history. It's well-known I first got started on this project. You mentioned the 2017 book, The Color of Law. In 2007, when Chief Justice John Roberts prohibited, he wrote the majority opinion, prohibited two school districts, Louisville, Kentucky, and Seattle, Washington, from enacting very, very token school desegregation plans. It was a choice plan. Nobody was forced to go to a school they didn't want, but people were given the opportunity to desegregate. And he said that they couldn't do that because the schools in Louisville and Seattle were segregated because the neighborhoods in which they were located were segregated. And he went on to say that government had no role in segregating those communities. That was other nonsense. In uh, the first book that you mentioned, The Color of Law, I described Louisville, Kentucky, one of those uh, communities where a white homeowner in a suburb sold a home to an African-American in the same community. And the state of Kentucky arrested, tried, convicted, and jailed him with a 15-year sentence for sedition. Wow. For having sold a home in a white community to a black family. So the notion that government had no role in segregating these uh, cities is utter nonsense. John Roberts should know better. He probably does know better, but he bases his decisions on this nonsensical idea that this all happened by accident, that government had no role in doing so. But... You urge legal activists to pursue court challenges aimed at eliciting minority dissents. Um, What will that do? Well, you know, there were many uh, times in our history when the Supreme Court was fatally wrong. And over time, uh, we chipped away at, at those errors. The best example is separate but equal. Uh, the Supreme Court said in 1896 that it was perfectly okay to have segregation. In 1954, they changed their minds. And so what we argue in just action is that we should not accept lying down uh, the current attitude of Chief Justice John Roberts and the rest of his majority that race-conscious remedies uh, are unconstitutional. No. Uh, the 14th Amendment, I'm sorry, go on. No, go, finish your thought. Well, the 14th Amendment, the 13th Amendment that abolished slavery and went on to prohibit the, the uh, characteristics of second-class citizenship uh, were clear in their intent to remedy uh, the history and legacy of slavery. And then we went on and reinforced it with this uh, erroneous Supreme Court idea that the Constitution was race-blind. Now, uh, yeah, it didn't uh, wasn't it argued that because uh, when the Constitution was adopted, uh, black people were not voting, so uh, they really didn't uh, have full citizenship rights. But that's not true. Well, when the, well, when the Constitution was adopted, yes, you're right. And you're referring to a, um, a decision of the Supreme Court called Dred Scott, where it yeah, said the that famous Dred Scott could decision. have no said that African-Americans could have no citizenship rights because they weren't able to vote when the Constitution was adopted. Well, free black people voted all over the country, even in a southern state like North Carolina, Mm. in the uh, referenda to ratify the Constitution. So this was, again, an example of a Supreme Court that was blissfully ignorant of its history or willfully ignorant of its history, and uh, we should not accept it as the final word. And it continues to this day, this past June... The Supreme Court voted in a 6-3 to three decision to curb affirmative action in higher education. Yes, we think that's a, a, an erroneous decision, and we think that universities and colleges 
should come up with creative ways of uh, challenging that decision, of enacting affirmative action policies that don't directly challenge the decision, but come up with different reasons. The Supreme Court decision in June was simply that you couldn't use race-conscious remedies to um, uh, diversify a student population. But there are many other reasons to have race-conscious remedies. We should have race-conscious remedies to remedy the unconstitutional exclusion of black students in the past. We should have race-conscious remedies to take account of the fact that many African-Americans are prepared for college in neighborhoods that were segregated by government and that provide fewer resources to them than it provides to white students. So there are many ways to challenge uh, the Supreme Court rather than to take its decisions lying down. And we encourage courageous college presidents as well as uh, other people to uh, not accept the Supreme Court's view as a final word. It's changed its mind so many times over the course of history that to think that this is the last word we're going to hear on this is uh, mistaken. But we have to wait for how many justices to to die off or quit? (laughs) (laughs) It's right now it's a six to three conservative majority, isn't it? Yes, but that that could change. It, it, uh, It wasn't so long ago that we, in fact, this is one of the reasons I think that the we're so uh, afraid to challenge the Supreme Court. We think if we simply keep quiet, the Warren Court will come back, uh, which was a, a strong liberal majority. Mm-hmm. It yeah. appeared, and we now have a conservative majority, but it, it, the liberal majority didn't come in the first place by uh, not challenging conservative decisions. If uh, the election goes the way the polls suggest, the majority will be even larger conservative, don't you think? Well, well I think it's Well, the President Trump has the named election. a number of conservative justices, that was my point. Oh, anyway, you, you recommend focusing on the promotion of targeted programs like down payment and credit report assistance to bolster uh, um, what you call a missing middle of prospective black home buyers who don't qualify for existing low-income federal programs. How would that work? Leah? Yeah, well, uh, if I could just comment on the previous conversation for a second, this is, you know, the very reason that we promote focusing on local policies is because, you know, enacting federal change is very difficult right now in these issues, but there's a lot that can be done locally. And they might be challenged and that might raise up to the Supreme Court and we can build up dissenting opinions to support these actions. But for now, there's so much that can be done locally that we don't have to focus only on what the Supreme Court will say we can and can't do. And I'll give an example. um, And this also applies to the down payment assistance question. Washington State um, has recently passed a law that is applying a $100 fee on every real estate transaction that will fund a, a fund to provide down payment assistance to families uh, descendant, descending from those who are excluded from home ownership by the racially restrictive covenants we were talking about. So they're doing this under an authority granted by the federal government to enact race-based um, Uh, race-focused and race-conscious financial instruments like down payment assistance or mortgage assistance that are targeted by race if that financial institution can do a study to prove that that race has been disadvantaged by the financial system in the past. So Washington State is undergoing this study to show how African-Americans and others were excluded from homeownership by racially restrictive covenants. And based on that study, we'll be able to offer race-based down payment assistance for families in the missing middle, um, which is a term we use to describe Mm -hmm. middle-income families who make too much to qualify for low-income housing, low-income subsidized housing, and too little to afford market-rate homes. And they're left out often of this conversation about affordable housing. And in reality, most African-American families fall into this missing middle. They're not mostly poor, um, qualifying for low-income housing. They're middle-income families who don't have intergenerational wealth for, for down payments, have the incomes likely to qualify for a mortgage, but can't find a home they can afford with the the cash they have on hand. So programs like Washington's, which is taking a race-based approach, a remedy for the past harms that the government helped um, instill, is a is a promising um, action that we should all be following and replicating. Well, 
this situation is a bit fluid. I grew up uh, in a, a neighborhood in Bed-Stuy, uh, which experienced white flight. And uh, when we finally left, uh, there were only two white families uh, on our block. And I just checked recently, and the apartment that I used to live in is now selling for $1.3 million. So there's a certain fluidity anyway, isn't there? Sure, yeah, there's a flip-flopping, if you will. So that that neighborhood, you know, white flight occurred. It became um, all non-white, and now it's gentrifying, mm -hmm. right? And so we, we address again. that issue in Just Action where um, what we need to do to address the ongoing impacts of segregation and to remedy its consequences is to invest in lower-income neighborhoods, neighborhoods that have become or were begun as all African-American and divested of resources. So we want to make those neighborhoods areas of higher resources. And we understand that when that happens, um, often prices shoot up and people with higher incomes want to move in. And mm -hmm. like what happened with the apartment you lived in, the prices go so high that the longtime residents of those communities can no longer afford to live there. So what those areas should be focusing on we argue is um, efforts to prevent some displacement that occurs when investment increases and prices rise. So protections for renters against rapidly increasing rents or unjust evictions. Um, land trusts are a, a great strategy for this. And land trusts are nonprofits that acquire properties, often in gentrifying neighborhoods, and create permanently affordable, often home ownership opportunities on those properties to ensure that residents of those communities um, you know, have some way out of being displaced from those rapidly increasing housing prices. There, there's still some affordable homes available in those communities. So there's a lot, again, a lot that can be done on the local level for all of these trends that we see happening in, in various communities. Now, Richard, 20 million Americans participated in racial justice demonstrations in 2020, although many displayed Black Lives Matter signs, few suggested what could be done to redress inequality in their own communities. Well, that's correct. And we think that's because they didn't know what those things were. That's the purpose of just action. Most people think that there's nothing that can be done too late. It's not too late. Uh, as Leah mentioned, we in, in the book, we talk about examples of people who have successfully implemented uh, some of the policies that she's talking about, land trusts that she just mentioned, inclusionary zoning and in communities that are gentrifying, uh, assistance to renters who are unlawfully experiencing uh, increases in rent when uh, landlords, for example, uh, don't maintain the buildings properly according to code and the buildings become unsafe so people are forced to leave and then they remodel the apartments and rent them to hire income people. All of those uh, that's what happened with my old apartment. At a local apartment. level. Yeah, I'm sure that's what happened with my well, old yeah. apartment. Mm -hmm. Yes, well, that, those can be challenged at a local level if people just uh, stand up. These are subject to local ordinances. It's, this is not a federal issue although the, the segregation was created federally. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. you're enjoying my conversation with Richard and Leah Rothstein. If you sign up to become a member of WBAI during today's show with a contribution of $50 or more, you can receive a free copy of their book, Just Action, How to Challenge Segregation and Act it Under the Color of Law. Uh, to do that, just go online to give to WBAI.org or call 212-209-2950 during today's show and we'll be happy to send you a copy. That's give on the number 2WBAI.org or 212-209-2950. Uh, 
Uh, but don't forget to make that $50 or more donation in the name of London Globe at Large. By the way, it's tax deductible. And we thank you very much in return now to Richard Rothstein and Leah Rothstein. Again, the name of their book, Just Action, How to Challenge Segregation Enacted Under the Color of Law from Liberite Publishing. Leah, you led the Alameda County and San Francisco Probation Department's research on reforming community corrections policy and practice to be focused on rehabilitation rather than punishment. Um, how does that apply to what we're discussing here? Well, there is overlap. And so what I worked on in those capacities was helping ensure a more effective and positive reentry experience for people coming out of incarceration. Now, one of the major challenges that people coming out of jail or prison face is a lack of housing opportunity. Part of the reason for that is because many landlords just blatantly refuse to rent to anyone with a criminal history, which um, some communities are addressing. So we write about this in Just Action as well. Um, they're addressing that through what are called ban the box ordinances that make it put some restrictions on how landlords can use the criminal history information, when they can ask for it, and on what grounds they can deny tenancy based on that that history. Because, you know, there is some some point in landlords using criminal history to determine tenancy, for sure. You know, they want to ensure safety for their tenants. Yeah, you can't but blame them also, on some level, right? On some level, yes. But on the larger grand scheme of things, you know, many people coming out of jail and prison aren't going to recidivate, aren't going to continue um, committing new crimes, especially if they have safe and secure housing. One of the main reasons that the cycle of crime continues is because people don't have a place to live and they you know, continue to um, participate in sort of uh, crimes of poverty and desperation. And so on a community-wide level, if we can't provide safe and secure housing for people who are trying to re rehabilitate out of the criminal justice system, then we're going to keep perpetuating that cycle. We also write about in Just Action um, sort of communities that are taking it even a step further in the other direction through what are called crime-free housing ordinances. And these are ordinances that require landlords to cooperate and communicate with police departments to determine if their tenants or prospective tenants have had any contact with law enforcement in the past. Now, any contact can mean anything. So in one community, um, which we wrote about in a Substack column, we have a Substack um, newsletter mm. where we're continuing to write about these issues. Um, just action. How do people substack. access that Substack column? Yeah, it's at justaction.substack.com. Okay. Um, so I wrote an update to this crime-free housing ordinance issue because there was a lawsuit in California, and it cited a woman who had called the police uh, with domestic violence complaints because she was being threatened by a partner. And as a result, she was seen to have criminal justice, quote-unquote, involvement and was evicted from her apartment and couldn't find a place to live anywhere in this town that had this crime-free housing ordinance. And so, um, you know, there's thousands of towns and cities across the country that have these ordinances. In this case, this town in, in California, it was challenged under fair housing, um, under the Fair Housing Act and racially discriminatory, you know, effect of this policy and it, and it was settled. Um, so these, you know, the, the balance between um, providing safety in our buildings and communities versus discriminating against people who are, you know, stereotypically assumed to have criminal involvement is a balance we need to engage with a little more carefully. Well, the Fair Housing Act was enacted in 1968, and yet here we are talking about unfair housing. That's right. Yes. <laughs> we well, still are. the Fair are. Housing Act... Go ahead. The Fair Housing Act is in, the Fair Housing Act is incapable of remedying the past policies of segregation, and as we've described before, those policies continue to have an enormous effect. But the Fair Housing Act isn't even enforced in its own terms. In the 2019 Newsday, the Long Island newspaper, did a, a, a an investigative report of real estate agents in the um, in the Long Island community. They uh, conducted what was called a, fair a paired testing program where they send pretend buyers 
to uh, visit real estate agencies, uh, people with identical backgrounds on paper, identical financial histories, uh, black and white. And they found that in 50% of the cases on Long Island, a place that is in a blue state, 50% of the cases, African-Americans face discrimination in their interactions with real estate agents, shown different uh, properties than whites were shown, uh, told that the neighborhood was a place that they wouldn't be welcome to a neighborhood where the white realtors would tell whites it was a very friendly neighborhood, and so on. If this is happening in 50% of the cases uh, in Long Island, you can be sure that the real estate industry is still getting away with discrimination and violation of the Fair Housing Act everywhere in the country. The only way to stop it is to have these kinds of paired testing programs all over the country, which can be done by fair housing centers that exist in only every, almost every city in the country. But those fair housing centers are underfunded. Those fair housing centers don't have sufficient volunteers to engage in this kind of paired testing. And so one of the things that well-meaning people in these suburbs can do who didn't know what to do is contact their local fair housing centers, contribute to their financial support, volunteer to be testers, and begin to eliminate the uh, kind of discrimination that the real estate industry continues to engage in. The other thing that can be done is state licensing agencies can stop licensing realtors who engage in this kind of activity. And it wouldn't take very many lifting of licenses to make a pretty quick change in how the real estate agency, real estate industry behaves. So we like to think that Jim Crow is a thing of the past, but <laughs> although it isn't called Jim Crow anymore, it does linger on. Yeah, there's, I can give and another example of, well, an example of a policy that, you know, we we think is race neutral and, uh, you know, doesn't have a discriminatory um, intent and it doesn't, but it has a discriminatory impact and effect. And that is the credit scoring system. Mm -hmm. So we think of the credit scoring system as an objective rating of our future likelihood of being able to repay a debt. So if you have a high enough credit score, you're more likely to be approved for a mortgage and you'll get a better interest rate if your credit score is even high enough. And, you know, that makes some sense. It's an algorithm that tells the bank if you're a good candidate for a mortgage based on your past financial history. But in reality, that algorithm, it's based on a certain type of financial history that whites are more likely to have than African-Americans um, for many reasons. One is it's based on more traditional financial history like previous uh, loans, car loans, uh, um, previous mortgages, um, credit cards, you know, more traditional financial instruments. Now, in African-American communities, they're less likely to have bank branches, less likely to have access to those more traditional financial instruments. And so they might rely more on non-traditional financial institutions like payday lenders. Now, payday lenders have hugely you know, exorbitant interest rates. Even if you pay back those loans on time um, and in full, that financial history isn't reflected in a credit score. Similarly, if you've never owned a home before, so you don't have mortgage payment history to feed into a credit score, but you've been a renter your whole life and you've paid your rent on time and never missed a rent payment, that financial history also isn't reflected in a credit score. So as a result, we have this seemingly objective race-neutral policy of credit scoring that has a racially disparate impact. Um, and the result is that more whites than African-Americans have a credit score at all. Um, because they have that type of financial history that feeds into the system. And of those that have a credit score, over two-thirds of whites have a credit score high enough to qualify yeah. for a mortgage, and about one-third of African-Americans do. So we Can say, I give another you know, have, statistic you give? African-American household income is about 60% of average white household income, and the wealth gap is a lot larger than the income gap. So average African-American household wealth is about... 5% of average white household wealth. That's, that's incredible. Right. And that's due a lot, you know, uh, primarily to these policies that helped whites get into home ownership when it was affordable and build up wealth that way and kept African-Americans from doing the same. You're listening to Leonard Lopez at Large in WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, and streaming live at WBAI.org. My guests are Richard Rothstein and Leah Rothstein, 
who have co-authored a book called Just Action, How to Challenge Segregation Enacted Under the Color of Law, published by Libright. Um, African-American children who grow up in segregated African-American neighborhoods more often live in communities with more pollution, and as a result, they grow up to have more asthma, lead poisoning, more cardiovascular disease, shorter life expectancies, and greater cancer rates than whites, even whites who grow up in poor white neighborhoods. Uh, so add that to the educational disparities. Then um, that's still true right now in uh, 2023, yes. 2024? <laughs> Go ahead, Yes, Richard. it is, but let me, let me uh, comment on something you just said. There are very few poor white neighborhoods. Poor whites, poor whites typically live in more diverse neighborhoods. Uh, poor African-Americans live in neighborhoods with more concentrated poverty because of the segregation that we described. The result so is wait, a, so a poor, poor white child. Wait, let me, let me get that clear. Poor whites tend to live in integrated neighborhoods and poor blacks no, no, tend no. to live in, in no. almost totally black neighborhoods. Is that what you're saying? No, no, no. Poor whites live in economically okay. diverse neighborhoods. That is, uh, poor whites are spread throughout middle class, lower middle class white neighborhoods. African-American poverty is much more concentrated. The result is that African-American children who are poor tend to go to schools that are overwhelmed with the social and economic problems of their children. Poor white children with families with identical incomes to those poor black children go to schools that are relatively uh, not affected by those kinds of uh, neighborhood concentrations of poverty. And so it's not they're not incomparable situations. Over half of the rents in a metropolitan area are out of reach uh, of a voucher holding tenant. Yeah, so Section 8 vouchers, that's the largest rental subsidy program for low-income families in the country. Two million households get Section 8 vouchers. It helps them pay their rent. And the, the promise and intention behind the Section 8 program was to help lower-income families leave those areas of high, high poverty concentration, to, to be able to use their voucher to live in higher opportunity areas, areas with better schools, more well-resourced public schools, and open space and access to jobs, you know, because that voucher is mobile. It's not tied to a building or a unit. They can use it anywhere in the private market. So it has this great promise for mobility for lower income families, a great promise for helping desegregate um, affluent majority white communities by allowing um, lower income families the ability to afford to live in them. But there's several aspects of the program that really limits its ability to live up to that potential. And in fact, only 5% of Section 8 families can use their vouchers to live in what are called higher opportunity neighborhoods, higher cost neighborhoods. And white Section 8 families are more likely to be able to than African-Americans. So one reason is discrimination. Discrimination against Section 8 voucher holders is an allowed form of discrimination by the federal government. But many states and localities have outlawed it locally. So New York State, New York City has an ordinance called uh, Source of Income Discrimination Ordinance that makes it illegal to discriminate against Section 8 tenants. Those ordinances need to be monitored and enforced to ensure that landlords aren't continuing to discriminate even when it's illegal, because that, that still occurs even when these ordinances are in place. And then what you mentioned is the voucher amount itself, how the voucher amount is calculated. It's calculated to be the maximum rent a voucher will support is set at just below the median of the entire metropolitan area's rents. So if you take the whole range of rents of a large metro area, take the middle rent there, 10% below that is the maximum rent a voucher will support. So that means by definition that over half of the rents in the metropolitan area are too expensive for the voucher holding family to afford. So it's not surprising that they can't use their vouchers to live in higher opportunity areas. Those are also often higher cost areas. So by the design of the program, it's limiting its own potential to allow this, what's called mobility moves. But there's there's also fixes to that. So many metropolitan areas are now required to use a smaller area for calculating the maximum voucher amount. So instead of using that median rent of the whole metro area, they break the metro area into smaller uh, smaller groups of zip codes, for example, and say that in this area, 
you know, the median rent in this zip code is the maximum rent a voucher will afford. And so that means that in higher cost areas, a voucher will pay more than in lower cost areas. That makes a lot of sense. And it provides a lot more opportunity for voucher holders to move to those higher cost areas. So there's now about 65 metro areas that are required to use this smaller area rent standard by the federal government. But outside of that, any housing authority can adopt this different payment standard that allows a broader range of rent um, levels for voucher holding families and can really go a long way towards allowing them um, opportunity and access to higher costs and higher opportunity neighborhoods. What about the credit scoring system? Isn't that race neutral? Yeah, so I was uh, mentioned that before the credit scoring system on its face is race neutral. It's an objective rating of our future likelihood of repaying a debt, but it is in effect, it's racially discriminatory, racially disparate impact because it is based on the type of financial history that whites are more likely to have than African-Americans. So when you use a, a seemingly objective rating that's based on a financial history that one group is more likely to have than another, then the result that comes out of that system is a disparate um, result where whites are more likely to have a credit score at all compared to African-Americans because African-Americans don't have the type of financial history that a credit score even recognizes. So for example, if you've paid rent your whole life on time, that doesn't factor into your credit score. If you've been a homeowner in the past and have paid a mortgage on time, that gives you a benefit in your credit score. It bumps up your credit score. So African-Americans, when they're applying for a loan, a mortgage to buy their first home, for example, or buy a home, they're less likely to have been a homeowner in the past. And their rental payment history doesn't factor into their credit score. So they're less likely to have a credit score at all. And when they do have one, they're less likely to have a credit score that's high enough to afford a mortgage. So this is a way that even though we say we don't have these racially discriminatory policies anymore because on its face, it's racially neutral, but in its effect and in its impact, it's racially discriminatory. And so this is something also that we can address on the local level. We can work with our local banks and financial institutions to adjust their credit scoring algorithms to start to factor in, for example, rental payment history. Mm -hmm. it, this goes a long way towards opening up mortgage access to African-American families. And we describe in Just Action some banks and credit unions that have started to do this on the local level. So again, um, a big issue that's national in scope but has a very local, um, a, a very local way of addressing it in our own communities. Richard, you begin your book. We only have a few minutes left, but uh, I wanted to ask you about this. You begin your book by arguing that to live up to our obligation to a racially, to remedy racial segregation, we need a new activated civil rights movement. Now, is that likely going to happen? Well, I think all of the things that we've been talking about are part of what an a new activated civil rights movement uh, should look like. Uh, it should look like, but are, are we seeing any real activity in this in this area? Oh, yes. As, as Leah described, for all of the programs, local programs that we describe in Just Action, we give illustrations of people who are actually succeeding in implementing them. They're not widespread, but the idea is to get them more widespread. But those uh, 20 million people that we talk about who uh, could get engaged in their communities to support actions that would help to desegregate their communities, to improve the resources of black neighborhoods and improve the access of African-Americans to white neighborhoods, that's what we mean by a, a reactivated civil rights movement. It doesn't involve sitting in lunch counters or trying to desegregate buses. It involves things like challenging the credit scoring system or uh, challenging the uh, discrimination that's going on in the real estate industry uh, or supporting inclusionary zoning or land trusts or any of the many other programs that, that Leah has described. That's what a hmm. new reinvigorated civil rights We, we only have about a life. minute left. And Leah, I want to give you the last word. Can you, do you anything you want to add? Yeah, I'll add that, you know, like my dad said, that there's so much we can do on the local level to begin to activate this new civil rights movement, which is what we need to affect change on this and to challenge the segregation of our communities, that we give enough examples in just action that there's no the excuse that we don't know what to do. 
um, doesn't really apply anymore. And it, it doesn't really matter where we start, just that we get started somewhere. And I want to thank you both for being great guests on our show today. I've been speaking with Richard Rothstein and Leah Rothstein. Their book, Just Action, How to Challenge Segregation Enacted Under the Color of Law, is published by Liberite. Uh, thank you so much. Anything you want to add before we go? No, That's thank it. Let's you. Just... Okay. Well, yeah, thank you for having us. Oh, well, you've been great guests. Thank you so much. And that does bring us to the end of our show. If you'd like to hear more of our one-hour deep dive interviews, you can access them streaming on demand at WBAI.org. Our podcasts are available on iTunes, Apple, and everywhere else that you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to write to me, my email address is leonardlopate at WBAI.org. Before I sign off today, I need to ask you to support BAI to keep the station going to you, coming to you during these rough times. All public radio stations are having a, a rough go of it, but BAI depends 100% on our listeners for our support. We don't take um, ads or whatever you would call them. Uh, we just simply ask our listeners to come through. So we're asking all of you who have the means to do so to make a contribution at whatever level you're comfortable with by calling 212-209-2950 or by going online to give to WBAI.org right now. That's 212-209-2950 or give and then the number two, uh, give number two WBAI.org. Uh, we need your help to keep bringing you this unique, in-depth content. Information you usually don't get anywhere else. And as I mentioned earlier, anyone who makes a contribution of $50 or more in the name of Leonard Lopate at large right now can receive a copy of the book we've been discussing, Silent uh, Just Action, How to Challenge Segregation Enacted Under the Color of Law by Richard Rothstein and Leah Rothstein. So why not make that call right now? And uh, again, the number 212-209-2950. Go online at give2wbai.org. Um, you might also consider becoming a sustaining member, what we call a BAI buddy. You could do that for $5, $10, $15, $20, 25 whatever amount you're comfortable with, $100 a month if you're comfortable with that for as long as you wish. And we will say thank you uh, with a WBAI tote bag to anyone who signs up to become a BAI buddy for $10 a month or more. But either way, hope that you'll call right now because BAI relies 100% on listener donations. We don't take ads or foundation grants, which allows us to be completely free speech radio. And if Leonard Lopez at large is part of your daily routine, why not keep it going for someone who's just discovering it. You can do that again by calling 212-209-2950 going online to give to WBAI.org. Help support independent radio. And don't forget to make that tax-deductible contribution in the name of Leonard Lopate at large from all of us at the station. Thank you very much. We hope you can join us again on Thursday when we'll have another show. Thank you.